Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. Dr. Jamie Seaman, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So good to be here. Thank you so much, Dr. Seaman. Women all over America are cheering for this episode. So thank you so much. I'm cheering for them. Well, we are excited to talk to you. We got a whole lot of questions when we told people that you were going to be on. So we're going to hit a lot of those. But before we do that, for those that don't know you, I want you to take just a few minutes and just tell us about yourself and about your journey. Yeah. So I'm a practicing board certified obstetrician and gynecologist. So I deliver babies and do surgery. I have a full-time clinic. Um, I'm also a fellow in integrative medicine, and I take a very preventative-based approach to my patient care. Um, I'm also a board-certified ketogenic nutrition specialist, but how that ever happened in my practice actually started really on a very, very, very personal level. I um, am married. I have three daughters, and I had three babies pretty much in 60 months during my medical training. And did everything I would tell my patients not to do. We know doctors aren't the best patients sometimes, but I was eating very poorly, but I was an athlete growing up. And so I got away with eating poorly and failed my glucose testing during my pregnancies and then was subsequently diagnosed with prediabetes and hypothyroidism after my third daughter was born. Mm. And then I had a major tragedy happen in my life. And it was just one of those turning points. Um, in my personal life where I just decided that I was really taking a lot of things for granted. And one of them was my health. And my husband and I kind of set forth on this journey of, of fixing our nutrition. I actually have a degree in nutrition and a medical degree. So it was, it was a low point for me to sit there and think, gosh, if I'm this educated and I can't figure this out, how can anyone else figure it out? And I've been very straightforward you know, even on social media that I'm just as human as my patients. I'm yes, I yes, I'm a doctor, but I am a human. I am a mom of three. I have all the same struggles. <laughs> These are human cells. And I had to figure it out for myself first. So three about three years ago, we settled on the ketogenic diet and mostly carnivore since last November. And it's just been a journey of self-experimentation and figuring out what works for us. And we've had incredible incredible results on a personal level. I'm, you know, I feel great. I feel like a completely different mom, a completely different wife. I, I'm a totally different doctor now and we feel good. My husband's migraines went away. I'm happy to say I'm off all thyroid medication. My hemoglobin A1C is 4.9. <laughs> so 
I just think it's hard to deny results. It's been hard being a physician in this community because, uh, you know, I have the same degree as registered dietitians and we clearly have different views on how to take care of patients. And, you know, I take care of pregnant patients too. And when it comes to gestational diabetes and things like that. So it started very personal for me. Um, but now I'm at a point where I really want to change the landscape of healthcare because I've learned that we have a lot of things wrong and it's not serving people. It's not serving women. And, um, although some days I feel like the black sheep, um, I know there's a large, a large tribe out there that's right behind me. Absolutely. Women all over the world are cheering you um, and cheering your transformation and what you're doing in the healthcare space. Um, I know a lot of women would kill to have a physician like you in our community that we can go and see for a lot of the questions and problem points that we're seeing in the ketogenic and carnivore community that you know, we're just kind of looking for some answers and some guidance. And that's why we're so excited uh, to have you here today. Um, you had mentioned that you had hypothyroid issues. And a lot of women have the Hashimoto's and thyroid issues that are transitioning to ketogenic and carnivore diets, and are just kind of unsure kind of how the thyroid works and how the ketogenic diet and the carnivore diet as far as macros and what to be eating will best serve the thyroid. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. So hypothyroidism is something that we encounter very commonly. And for me, I did not have Hashimoto's. So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disorder where your body creates antibodies that attack your own thyroid gland. And not everybody that has Hashimoto's necessarily has hypothyroidism. Sometimes patients will have high antibody levels, but they still have pretty you know, good thyroid function. Um, for me, my hypothyroidism was likely caused by my insulin resistance. So I was a, a pre-diabetic, and we know that insulin resistance does contribute to hypothyroidism. So the the most common causes that, that we encounter in women's health for hypothyroidism worldwide, the most common would be iodine deficiency. So when patients get an enlarged thyroid gland, they get goiter and it's usually due to, due to decreased iodine in the diet. And that's still, still a problem in the United States. I mean, our soils deplete, our food doesn't have the nutrients it used to have. And most people's iodine is, is iodized table salt. <clears throat> And so, first of all, just straight iodine deficiency can cause hypothyroidism. Then let's just talk a little bit about how the thyroid gland really works. So you have a hormone in your brain that gets secreted from your pituitary gland called your thyroid stimulating hormone. And that is the hormone that goes and tells your thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone. And the predominant thyroid hormone is um, T4. And then that goes out into the body and, and in the peripheral tissues gets converted to T3. We do see a little bit of T3 production from the thyroid, but, but T4 and T3 are these main thyroid hormones, T3 being the, the most active. Um, when we are checking for hypothyroidism, a standard lab test that most doctors would check is just checking the TSH and the free T4 level. And that's not the best way to do it because it's a little bit more complex than that. So first of all, if, if a patient is coming to my clinic, they want to start low carb or ketogenic, and we want to do some baseline testing. We look at their TSH, we look at their total T4 and T3, their free T4 and T3, and then something called reverse T3. And then I do screen for um, autoimmune antibodies, um, Hashimoto's most commonly being TPO antibodies. So 
when you do a thyroid testing, you really should be looking at, at all of those things. Now, when somebody is trying, because I think the most common reason that, that women especially go into keto and low carb is for weight loss. And when a woman is attempting to lose weight through whatever diet it is, she is attempting to create calorie deficit, right? So we know that you can lose, you can skin a cat a hundred ways. You can lose weight on a celery juice cleanse or whatever it is, right? So anytime somebody is creating a calorie deficit, we see a reduction in thyroid hormone. So first of all, just know that if, if somebody says, oh, well, look, your thyroid went down, you went keto, that's bad. No, that would probably happen if you were just dieting in general. So first of all, just know that when you're in a calorie deficit, your body naturally lowers its thyroid, its T3 hormone, because it is sensing essentially that you are in a period of low food supply or starvation, and it is trying to preserve its energy sources. So this is an adaptive mechanism that our bodies have. It's not good. I mean, everybody would love to have just like a rampant thyroid, right? Like Because we know that our thyroid is like our metabolism. But when you look at longevity, it's not great to have a thyroid that's overproducing. Um, our bodies are made to be in what we call homeostasis. It's this perfect little balance and we don't want it too high and we don't want it too low. So just know that when you start a diet of any kind with calorie deficit, your thyroid function might go down. Now let's talk specifically about low carb. Um, when we have looked at the studies where they have tracked thyroid levels. Dr. Volick, Dr. Jeff Volick probably has produced a lot of the studies that have looked at this. Um, we have seen a reduction in the T3 hormone, which is our, our active um, thyroid hormone, but we don't see a rise in the TSH. So this, this is a loop. This is a feedback loop. So if the hormone function goes down, the brain is supposed to say, hey, it went down, let's try a little harder and it's supposed to secrete more TSH. And I've seen this clinically and it basically parallels what Dr. Volick and others have published in papers showing that we do see a reduction in free T3 levels, but we don't see a concomitant rise in thyroid stimulating hormone. And if a patient is truly hypothyroid, that TSH really should be rising. And um, the, the thing too is it's always absence of symptoms. So a lot of times we check it T3 is on the lower end of normal, maybe 2.1, uh, but the patient is totally asymptomatic. And that's actually what it's been like for me. My T3 actually is like 2.4, 2.5 usually, my free T3 level. And my TSH actually hovers around 2.5. Back when I had hypothyroidism, um, I could basically tell you when my TSH was above one, I felt horrible. I mean, and a lot of patients are very in tune with their bodies and, and can report very similar feelings. But um, so that's just for, for straight hypothyroidism when you're talking about calorie deficit. Now back to the, the iodine for just a second, there are other cofactors in the kind of pathway of, of thyroid and metabolism. We have things like selenium, zinc, magnesium, um, vitamins C and E, I mean, pretty much, you know, all of our vitamins, we have all these cofactors. So if you're not eating a well, you know, balanced diet that provides these bioavailable nutrients that can contribute to hypothyroidism too. It can convert it. Maybe you can't convert T4 to T3. Maybe you don't even use T3 well inside the cell due to a nutrient deficiency. So it's very, very, very complex. And it's hard sometimes to pinpoint where in the kind of cascade is, is the issue, right? Because nutrient testing is actually very hard too to test patients because 
we can test in the blood, but that doesn't tell us what's going on in the cell. So, um, you know, my theory, and I think a lot of other researchers in this space is that when people do low carbon ketogenic, um, I have seen people have reversal of their hypothyroidism. And I do think it's probably this just like we see an increase in insulin sensitivity, we see an increase in thyroid sensitivity. So maybe you don't need more T3. Maybe your T3 is just working better. What you have is working better. When it comes to Hashimoto's, which I think is kind of a question you asked, in that situation, we have to figure out what is causing the inciting um, problem. So why is the patient attacking their own body? Why are they creating these antibodies in the first place? And so Hashimoto's can be a little bit more complex because on a dietary level, we think of the two most common things, which are gluten and dairy. But for a lot of these patients, it's that they have a very broken gut. It's exposing their body to a lot of different antigens and things that are inflaming it. And in those situations, it, it can take more time. It's not simple. It can take time to repair the gut and to reverse the inflammation and to keep the antibodies at bay. Um, you know, autoimmune disorders are essentially, you know, for life, you can certainly control them very well with lifestyle. But um, in these situations, you know, we follow the antibody levels, we follow the thyroid function, and, and it's not just nutrition. There's lots of other pieces to that puzzle when you're talking about autoimmunity. Thank you so much for that great overview. I know a lot of women are going to have a lot of value um, from what you just spoke about. And I wanted to kind of transition that into another hormone problem that's very common for women. Um, several conditions such as the PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, fibroids, and the balance between estrogen dominance and androgens. A lot of women struggle uh, with these hormone levels. There's a lot of very unpleasant cosmetic symptoms, uh, weight gain, metabolic issues. And I was just wondering if you could speak with that as to what you're seeing um, in women on zero carb versus ketogenic diets and some strategy uh, right. that, you, that you're finding successful in your patients. Right. So PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a, a horrible name for the disease personally, it is a disease of insulin resistance. And so a lot of women think like, I have these cysts on my ovaries and they are, you know, causing these problems. That's, it's not really the case. So first line therapy for polycystic ovarian syndrome is a low carb and ketogenic diet. Um, it is the number one best thing that a woman with PCOS can do to balance her hormones and to create a regular menstrual cycle. Um, the real issue with PCOS is it's a very vicious cycle for these women because what happens is they have insulin resistance and then the ovary makes more testosterone and then that causes more insulin resistance and it's just this like vicious cycle. And so they have these very high androgen levels, which androgens are, women have androgens too, but androgens are more, you know, a male type hormone and it creates dark hair growth and it creates acne and then the woman stops ovulating and when she stops ovulating, she doesn't have a menstrual cycle and that creates estrogen dominance. So now she has possibly excessive androgens in her system. Now she has excessive estrogen with no progesterone to balance it. And that can make somebody feel pretty horrible. A lot of, a lot of symptoms. I myself actually was, was told I had PCOS. I, I probably fit the bill trying to get pregnant with my first daughter and I needed some extra medication. I actually had to go on metformin and then um, Clomid to get pregnant with my first daughter. And it can cause infertility for these women. 
So what happens is when we drive insulin down in this situation with a low carbon ketogenic diet, we can create better insulin sensitivity and we can usually get these women menstruating. I've gotten a lot of women pregnant in my clinic just through dietary modifications and not having to use additional medications like metformid and Clomid and Femara. Um, and, but I think sometimes patients don't realize the impact that their diet really has on their disease process. They just think, well, it's kind of, you know, runs in my family. Now I've got PCOS and I, you know, I just have to deal with it. And um, we do see reversal of some of the hirsutism, which is like that dark hair growth and acne, but those can be things that women battle. I, um, kind of through going carnivore and things like that have, have tried to treat my own hormonal acne. I still sometimes will have some issues, especially if I have too much dairy in my diet. So, um, the thing that women need to know is we are very complex biological even for I have some women with peace never know they had peace but in a general sense the number one treatment is to is to fight that insulin resistance and that's with reducing dietary carb consumption and with that, a lot of women struggle also with their menstrual cycles, having the irregular menstrual cycles. And when they go on a ketogenic or carnivore diet, their menstrual cycle changes. And there's a lot of questions regarding why does that happen? And what trends are you seeing um, among women that transition to a ketogenic and carnivore diet as far as the menstrual cycle? So... A menstrual cycle in a woman is like a vital sign. <laughs> it basically is telling us if it's okay to have a pregnancy. And so anytime women have abnormal periods, abnormal lengths of periods, heavy periods, light periods, they're missing periods, you name whatever it is, there is some dysregulation in the body. The body is saying, this is not a good time for a pregnancy. It will either stop ovulating or you know, other things will manifest. And so women should know that um, when you start changing things, when you start changing your diet, when you start, when you've lost 50, 100 pounds, there are going to be hormonal fluctuations that happen until you are back at that, what I would like to call like a steady state or back at maintenance. So sometimes those are things that we just have to kind of work through as people are kind of in their journey of healing and getting back to, to a healthier place. But once we have, you know, reverse insulin resistance, gotten to a good goal weight, those things that are not normal, then we need to start doing further investigations. A woman basically goes through puberty, right? Average age around age 12. And then she goes through all these, these years of fertility. And it's basically like two weeks of estrogen, two weeks of progesterone, but there's things that can alter the secretion of those hormones. Thyroid can play, play a part in that. Calorie restriction can play a part in that. Um, cortisol and stress can play a part in that. Um, maybe they have underlying, you know, autoimmune disorders, which endometriosis really, you know, is, is kind of theorized to be more autoimmune. And, and then a woman goes through what we like to call reverse puberty, which is perimenopause. And that's a very common time to see dysregulation as the hormone productions go down. So it depends how old a woman is. So for people listening, it depends how old you are. And it depends where you're coming from in your health. If you, you know, have PCOS or if you have endometriosis or it depends what your body fat level is because women who carry extra body fat actually have more estrogen. So our 
our fat is not just this spongy little yellow cell that sits underneath our skin. It, it actually functions as an endocrine organ and it has enzymes in it, one of them being called aromatase. And aromatase is what converts testosterone into estrogen. And so it's so complex. And so for women that have a dysfunctional cycle, you should be working with a provider that knows how to test your levels of your hormones. And they have to be tested very specifically. If you're an ovulating woman, they have to be tested very specifically at a certain time of your cycle. Like for instance, if I want to know what a woman's progesterone production looks like, I look around cycle day 21. If I want to know what her FSH and LH and ovarian reserve looks like, we look earlier in the cycle, maybe around cycle day three. I also have the ability in my clinic to do what we call cycle mapping. We actually test on every single day of the cycle. I do it through through um, Dutch um, Precision Analytic Lab, and we can actually map, we call it cycle mapping. We can map the whole cycle. So if there is a problem that's not getting better with your dietary interventions or nutrient supplements, then you should test. And because if you don't test, you just don't know. You know, that's, that's super interesting. And, you know, talking about the uh, period and the menstrual cycle being a good indicator of women's health, you know, food is information, as we know, it's, it's not just energy. And I think that epigenetically, it's sending a signal to every cell in our body and to all of these hormonal pathways that this is, this is a good time. And, you know, I think about times in our evolutionary past where, you know, we were eating, you know, the herds had moved on and we didn't have enough fat in our diet, didn't have enough meat in our diet. And, you know, that was a time where the body would say, okay, now's not the time to reproduce. Now's time to, you know, kind of come in and, and focus on things. So uh, maybe talk to that, Doc, like what, what are some of your findings as far as the importance of food or meat or some of these things in our diet? Yeah. So I encounter a lot of women for, you know, preconception care. And when we're talking about a woman growing another human being inside of her body, that's a really important time to have a lot of nutrients. And you brought up this idea of epigenetics. And this is a, a part of my practice that I'm very, very, very passionate about. Because when you talk about impacting a woman that's going to create another life, you're talking about through epigenetics, the ability to impact life for generations come. So for somebody listening, what epigenetics literally means is that what you eat in your pregnancy literally turns off and turns on different genes inside your baby through methylation. So it's the ability to, to change your baby's health outcomes. When we look at, for instance, insulin resistance in pregnancy, um, hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia in pregnancy does increase your baby's lifetime risk of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. So we know that that food, I mean, literally is acting like on a cellular signaling level with our DNA. Um, when we look at like prenatal nutrition guidelines for a woman that wants to get pregnant, um, you know, current women eat about 55 to 60% of their calories from carbohydrates. And when we look at the nutrients that it takes to grow a healthy baby, many of them come in the most bioavailable form from animal foods. They come from eggs and beef and liver and salmon and it's mathematically impossible, like specifically, like when you look at choline recommendations for a woman to eat 55 to 60% of her calories from carbs and still get the nutrients that she really needs. So I think that we need to be taking a closer look at this when it comes to prenatal nutrition recommendations. And frankly, um, 
a woman could really get pregnant anytime between <laughs> puberty and perimenopause. I've even had, um, I've had some, unfortunately, some perimenopausal women who all of a sudden started menstruating again, um, doing low carb ketogenic. And, and I've had some women in their late forties who have become pregnant. So, um, it, the body is smart <laughs> and, um, when it has all the nutrients and everything it needs, um, to create life, it will. <laughs> And with that, um, I did receive several questions, um, especially for women, uh, just to circle back to the PCOS, fibroids, and endometriosis. If there's any guidance as to the macro ratios uh, for protein and fat um, or trends that you're, you're seeing uh, for women, because a lot of women, when they approach this nutritional change, they're not quite sure uh, where their focus should be as far as the macronutrients. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So a traditional standard ketogenic diet is going to be lower in protein and higher in fat. But the kind of take home message I want people to hear is that the ketogenic diet is simply the restriction of carbohydrates. It actually has nothing to do with fat. A lot of people call it low carb, high fat, but for some women, it's not high fat. And so it's simply the restriction of carbohydrates. So if your goal is treating insulin resistance, you must stay below that threshold. There's a difference between low carb and ketogenic. And so then when you take that macronutrient off the table, and the question is how much protein and how much fat, the standard ketogenic diet is probably somewhere around 20% protein. And for a woman that has insulin resistance, a woman that's older, maybe perimenopausal or menopausal, um, or a woman that doesn't work out, um, you know, in the gym very hard, then staying towards that, you know, 20%, maybe 25 or 30. I like to bump women's protein up because I find that most women are under consuming protein, you know, when they first come to me. Um, and then the rest of it would be fat. Now, carnivore is a very interesting one to kind of look at because when you completely 100% eliminate carbs and you're talking about zero carb, then then you're, you're talking about, do you eat one to one? Do you eat one and a half to one? What do you do? And I um, have had the privilege to um, consult with a lot of women actually in the carnivore community, because I do think that there is a problem with this balance. I, I find that when women go to a carnivore diet and just start eating ribeyes, um, you know, when you look at the macronutrient content of that, um, it's basically like a one to one ratio. And with time, as their body fat goes down and they get to a lower body fat percentage, I have seen some of these women um, will stop menstruating. The period will, will go away. And so I think that when women are doing carnivore, they do need to be a little bit conscious about how much protein they're actually consuming and making sure that they're getting adequate fat in the diet, especially if you are at a lower body fat or a maintenance body fat because our hormones are literally made from cholesterol and our body can make cholesterol, but, um, but, but dietary fat, when you're at a, at a maintenance, you know, the ketones that you make either come from dietary fat or body fat. And so if you've already depleted a lot of your body fat, a lot of your dietary fat is what is supplying that, that substrate, the cholesterol substrate. And so it's important in these situations to make sure they're getting enough fat. So, a lot of women will start at a one-to-one -one ratio, and as we get closer to their goal, we start bumping up the fat a little bit, but it's very individualized. Like I said, if a woman is working out in the gym super, super, super hard, she may be able to stay at that higher protein level. It just depends what the person's goal is. Do they need to stay in a state of ketosis? Are they menstruating or not? It's very individualized, but 
um, I think that women um, who are on carnivore need to be conscious about, about their fat consumption. And that's a very good point. And that brings me to the question. There are a lot of women that are in uh, perimenopause, postmenopause that have had breast cancer and they're not able to have the HRT um, hormone replacement for some reason or another uh, due to their individual care. And the question then becomes with, with that, so the focus should be more on fats for hormone control, in your opinion? So a woman that goes through perimenopause and then into menopause, essentially the estrogen levels, testosterone levels, progesterone levels all go close to zero. There's a small amount of estrogen and progesterone that are still made from the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys and then, you know, peripherally in our fat tissues. But there's no way through dietary interventions to get your body to suddenly make more estrogen. So unfortunately, if a woman is not a candidate for hormone replacement, eating beef suet is not going to magically make more estrogen appear <laughs> from the ovary. <laughs> now, the, the issue, the, the, the reason that women become so symptomatic is because that estrogen does amazing things in our body. Um, of course, people think about hot flashes and night sweats, but um, we have estrogen receptors in our brain. We have estrogen receptors in our heart and in our bones and, and all sorts of different places. And so um, there are alternative therapies, depending on what a patient's symptoms are, to hormone replacement therapy. But I have noticed taking care of perimenopause and menopausal women that it seems like the ones that have their nutrition under control um, seem to be less symptomatic. They, they really just seem like they transition better um, and and do just much less symptomatology. I was going to ask you about soy. Uh, it's so popular, especially with the plant-based craze. We're seeing soy added to all kinds of all kinds of food products. And being a phytoestrogen, what what type of impact are you seeing? What what are your thoughts around soy? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so plants are not benign. We, we certainly know that. Um, uh, soy being one of them, it does have estrogenic effects. And I think the research, you know, you can find research studies that show that it increases the risk of estrogen-related diseases and things like breast cancer. And then the next study says that it's protective against, against these types of things. Um, I think that I think that in a general sense, um, we, we don't need plants at that level. I think that um, when we look ancestrally what women ate, they weren't eating the amount of soy, you know, that somebody would be eating on a plant-based diet. Um, and it, I, I do have a lot of concerns when that's just the main source of, of protein and things like that for some people, that they are having excessive phytoestrogen exposure. Um, there's other plants that have estrogenic activity, for instance, with this kind of like essential oil um, boom that's happened over the last five to 10 years. Lavender oil in little boys can actually cause gynecomastia through estrogen effects. So plants are definitely not benign and people really need to be aware of those. If women, if a perimenopausal or menopausal woman is thinking about using phytoestrogens for menopause symptoms, I have, I mean, I have seen it work for some women, but um, if you... If you have the ability to use biochemicals, I, I would use that as first-line therapy first. 
Right, right. Absolutely. And like with all things, it's, uh, you know, using it in the proper context, properly processed, uh, you know, a lot of the soy that's consumed around the world, like in the Asian culture, of course, is fermented. And we see a big difference with fermented soy products and then the processed soy that's being put out and all these types of processed plant food creation. So, um, yeah, that's that's always, you know, my my take is if you're going to use plants, do it properly. Our ancestors knew how to peel and seed and boil and properly prepare it today we're taking it in in doses that we never would have in the past and in ways that we knew better to not do it so that's really interesting i was going to ask you about uh fasting what are your thoughts what are your clinical experiences what are you seeing out there yeah so i think that you know we see a lot of people low carbon ketogenic who add fasting as part of their regimen it's very easy because we know that the presence of ketones or BHB in the bloodstream is a great appetite suppressant. So it suppresses ghrelin, our hunger hormone, actually quite well. And so for a lot of people, they're very surprised how much their hunger goes down when they're when they're low-carbon ketogenic. So, But we know that even outside of the low-carbon ketogenic diets, that there are studies that show a benefit to what we call time-restricted feeding. Basically, we were designed to eat around the circadian rhythms and around the sunlight and then we went inside buildings and cars and started to lose all of these, you know, signals. And we started eating like breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks in between. And like that was totally made up by American culture. So um, I'm a huge fan of time-restricted feeding and fasting. But I think that people have to ultimately ask themselves, like, what is their goal with that? Because I think that for some people who come from a place of very disordered eating, like restriction and binging and things like that, um, I see a lot of the people in those space that sometimes um, it can get a little bit excessive and um, extended fasting is a form of stress on the body, right? To like break something down and then build it up stronger. So I think people need to be very cautious with how often they're doing extended fasting. So for my patients, I don't recommend an extended fast more than once per month, but I'm perfectly fine with patients doing intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, you know, around their schedules um, if it works for them. For some patients, it does. For some, it doesn't. And we know that there are some what we call nutrigenomic influences, meaning some, some people feel good fasting and some people do not tolerate it. So I always say be your own expert and do what works for you because that's the only thing that will work in the long run is what is actually sustainable. Um, I think it is good too because sometimes it really teaches patients about their relationship with food and the triggers that we have in our in our societies and things like that. And and like I said, there's other benefits. I mean, we we just had a study that was published this year. It was not low carbon ketogenic, but just doing alternate day fasting, we can see a 50% reduction in insulin production. So it is a powerful, powerful tool that people can use. And for my perimenopause and menopausal women, when we see this reduction in estrogen, we see an increase in insulin resistance and Intermittent fasting seems to be the best tool for those women um, to to fight that change because it's very hard to tell a woman who's been eating 1,800 calories for a really long time that she's just older and has less muscle mass and she just needs to eat less. It's very, very, very hard for, for people to just all of a sudden eat less. But when you say, let's just do lunch and dinner, let's take all those calories you were eating and let's 
put them in two meals a day and they just seem to do really well with it. They feel better. Um, it's fighting the insulin resistance that comes with loss of estrogen. And it is a great tool for a lot of people. Are you also finding that uh, women have less loose skin? I saw a very interesting talk this past summer given by Megan Ramos on the ketogenic diets and loose skin with every other day fasting on an uh, ketogenic with OMAD that patients were having great success and having reduction in the loose skin problem. I'm just wondering what you were seeing in your practice. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, right? This this concept of autophagy, which is like where our body eats up all the dead and damaged cells, like what is happening on a on a you know level of the skin? I think Dr. Fung and, and Megan Ramos have certainly had a lot of anecdotal evidence with the with the number of patients that they see that are fasting. I don't know that anybody's ever explained that mechanism. But we do know when we look in our skin, you know, our skin is an organ, right? We know that like the liver can grow and shrink when you're fasting, right? So you, know, you have to imagine that there definitely are changes in the skin. The issue is that like, for instance, like when patients have this get stretch marks, they've been morbidly obese for a really long time. We've always thought that that was a defect that really couldn't be corrected. Now we're saying, well, maybe that's not necessarily true. But our skin also, we think about collagen, you know, patients that are consuming like good animal products with lots of connective tissue and collagen and things like that, that is probably helping their skin. I know for sure my, you know, just my facial skin um, between um, ketogenic diet and red light therapy has seen major improvements. And I have seen patients that felt like their skin was tighter. Have we studied it side by side? No. And there's, you know, still are a lot of patients that end up having significant physical, um, you know, abnormalities and plastic surgery in that case is the only option. But there are, there are, there are other non-invasive techniques too, you know, as well cryotherapy and things like that that can sometimes tighten the skin you know pretty well but I think it's an I think it's an interesting thing that we that we're seeing and and time will definitely tell yeah it really is interesting and you know the the autophagy effect uh I know with with a lot of my clients and even myself it's like you just come to really respect the body and its wisdom and intelligence and when it comes time to burn things it's gonna burn the unused damaged uh you know, uh, tissue. And so like I've seen lipomas dissolve and go away. Uh, I've heard of fibroids and tumors and all kinds of things that when people are, are practicing some of this fasting, it, uh, it, it's just truly amazing. I was wondering if you've seen some of that, if you've seen any of the improvement with fibroids and tumors and things like that. Um, I haven't had anything like super miraculous okay. <laughs> as for like a growth, you know, like that. But I mean, for instance, just think of the research that we've seen with like glioblastomas. I mean, we've had people that have shrunk a whole entire brain tumor. So, you know, I think it's a hundred percent possible when you stop feeding these things, like for instance, fibroids grow with excessive estrogen. Fibroids in a uterus are a sign of estrogen dominance. And if you take away all that extra estrogen, you know, because they do shrink after menopause, right? Which is when the production of estrogen basically goes to zero. So if you, you know, I, I think it's completely plausible. I haven't had any like major successes in my clinical practice. I certainly, I don't see, you know, a lot of lipomas and, and things like that or, you know, growths, but um, I have seen definitely uh, dermatologic conditions that have seen significant, you know, improvement through, through dietary changes. 
Absolutely. And I just wanted to touch on uh, two additional topics uh, that we received a lot of questions on. Uh, we just had the wonderful Sally Norton on our podcast who was speaking about oxalates. And she has educated a lot of women regarding the condition of vulvodyna. And we received a lot of questions when uh, women saw that you were going to come on because when women transition from the uh, ketogenic to the carnivore diet, they have vulvodyno flares and also use these diets to try to treat that condition, uh, which can be severe genital pain in some women. And I'm just wondering if you can speak on what you're seeing in your practice or some guidance and if you believe vulvodyna is oxalate dumping. Yeah, so unfortunately, this condition um, is somewhat refractory to a lot of our current um, treatment options for these women. I mean, this condition sometimes goes as far as actually resecting the vestibula, so actually like resecting part of the vulva and labia and things like that. Um, and I had never in my medical training ever had anyone imply that oxalates in the diet could contribute to vulvodynia. Um, and over the last three years, I've had a handful of patients who, when I do dietary recalls in these women, they're like eating a green spinach smoothie for breakfast, and they're having some almond milk, and then they're having some almonds in the afternoon, and they're consuming all these oxalate-rich foods. And um, especially like when people go low-carb, and all of a sudden they're consuming almond flour and like all these things. And in all of the women that I have encountered, reducing dietary oxalates has improved or completely um, resolved their vulvodynia symptoms. So I'm a huge, huge believer. I love Sally Norton and what she's doing. Um, you know, we also kind of see this concept of like oxalate dumping, and we think that could be why people get keto rash. I've had two patients in particular that, that experienced keto rash. Um, and it's not, you know, in the, the recommendation is we'll eat carbs again. Then if it gets better then just don't go low carb ever again, but it's not like that is, it's probably this detoxification, this oxalate dumping that, that's happening inside their bodies. Absolutely. And, um, I, I a hundred percent agree with that. I've, I've also seen that just being a pharmacist and having a lot of, uh, consultations at my consultation window regarding this condition, um, with oxalates as women go lower carb, they tend to end up, um, finding some relief in, in the condition. The other question I have for you, which is a very popular question was regarding your training. You look amazing. Your transformation is absolutely incredible. And a lot of women struggle with osteoporosis. And I know that you just did an amazing post on your Instagram uh, regarding bone health and training. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. So I grew up as an athlete. Um, you know, I loved working out. But literally the day that I left the university that I played for, I never wanted to step back in the gym. <laughs> I was so just kind of burnt out and over it. And I, I went into my medical training. I did work out a little bit in medical school, but I went through these three pregnancies in 60 months and it just like ravaged my body. I got back to a good place with my diet and it actually was only 18 months ago. Well, I guess now it's been like 20 months ago that I got back into the gym doing heavy resistance training. And that made the single greatest impact on my body composition. I mean, I had done a lot with my diet. I had lost a lot of weight. I felt really good. Um, but lifting weights changed my body in ways that just cannot be done through, through dietary intervention. So I tell women, the two things you need to know is fat is lost in the kitchen 
muscle is gained in the gym. <laughs> and if you people, when people ask me what I do, I say meat and weights, meat and weights, meat and weights, <laughs> because women are under consuming protein. They need to eat more protein and they need to lift weights. Okay. Women need to stop being afraid of the gym. Find a, you know, I know it seems intimidating when there's like these big muscle dudes in the gym and you don't know what you're doing or you don't know how to lift properly or whatever it is, but whether you have to go to classes or hire a personal trainer or whatever it is, because as the woman ages, the best thing you can do to protect your metabolism and your longevity and all these things that you really want is to build a bunch of lean body mass. And if there's any 20 or 30 year olds listening, now is your time. You're in your like peak levels. You have all the hormones to do it. Your growth hormone is pumping out. Get in the gym, do some resistance training, because when you go into a calorie deficit, and you're trying to lose weight at some point, the first thing your body's going to do is say that, oh, your bicep is a very expensive tenant. Let's just get rid of the bicep. So the way you keep your muscles is by your brain telling your bicep that you still need it. And we do that by getting adequate dietary protein in the bloodstream and then stressing the muscle, putting it under stress, just like bending a steel bar so that it builds stronger and stronger and stronger. So if women want to change their bodies, you're not going to turn into the incredible Hulk. I promise you, <laughs> you're actually going to lean out very. And that's been the cool thing is my weight has actually been the same for about the last 365 days, but my body composition just continues to change and change and change. And it's consistency. It's not going to happen overnight. It's something that you just have to do on a regular basis. And my social media followers know I work out at 5 a.m. because that's the only time it's going to happen. I say, pay yourself first. My workout's done. It doesn't matter what happens the rest of the day. If a patient goes into labor or my kids, you know, need me or something like that, it happens at 5 a.m. for me. So um, find a friend to do it with you. The circle of influence is really big and nobody wants to work out by themselves. And um, I just highly, highly encourage any woman listening uh, meat and weights. That's where it's at. <laughs> awesome. Well, you have had a very, a very inspiring reinvention story. And for those women that are listening right now, maybe they're in their forties and they're thinking, you know, it's time. Uh, what would be your advice to them as far as reinventing themselves? And also maybe for doctors, women doctors in medicine, like what would your advice to them be for how to kind of reinvent themselves in their practice? Well, I think as a, I mean, I think as a healthcare provider, we should walk the walk and talk the talk. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how we can tell patients what to do if we're not willing to do it ourselves. So I think in the healthcare community, my other female providers out there, um, we need to be the example for these women. And like I said, I'm human too. I get it. I, I have bad days. I have you know, a bad day in the clinic. And I do, I want to go home and I want to emotionally eat and things like that. But when you realize what's funny is that, as I always say in the keto community, there's something different. Like it's like keto people are, I think Tara Garrison said this when I was in Utah a couple weeks ago, she says, keto people are just woke. <laughs> it's like, we all came into this because of dietary changes, but then all of a sudden we just start all these other areas of our life start changing. Like we just seem more inspired and we just like, my relationships change. And I just started like viewing my children differently. And, and all, when you take the burdens of like, like migraines and fatigue and, and all this away, 
it gives you the ability to literally live your life. Like it's a whole nother level of life. Well, you know, once you've done that and it's never too late, it's never, ever, ever too late. I have a woman um, in my clinic who is in her sixties who we've been doing dietary changes. We did some hormone replacement therapy and just this year she started doing powerlifting competitions and she's like, I'm definitely the oldest one there and I'm not going to win because it's just by weight class. Right. So she's competing against these like 30 year old women, uh, but she loves it. And she has like this new passion for life. And um, so, you know, there's something for everybody and it's never too late. Awesome. I love it. Well, this has been really encouraging. Um, do you have any parting advice for those listening and then tell everyone where they can find you? So my, the biggest piece of advice I tell people is nobody should care about your health more than you. So your doctor can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. This has to be something that you really, really decide, you know, on a deep, deep, deep level that you want for yourself, that your health is more important than anything else. It's the one thing you cannot buy in this world. You cannot buy your health. You absolutely cannot. So you either have to do the work or, or go the other way. Um, people can find me. I'm on social media, Dr. Fit and Fabulous, both on Instagram and Facebook. I also have a website, drfitandfabulous.com. Um, lots of exciting projects happening in the next year. 2020 is going to be an amazing year. I'm working on a book. I have a podcast starting. Um, I'll be speaking at a few different conferences next year. So I'm just super, super excited to get out there and meet people. Don't be a stranger. I love hearing from people. Thank you so much uh, for coming on today. And that's so exciting. Chris and I are cheering you on women all over uh, the country. And I know the world are cheering you on. You're such a treasure in women's health. And I can't thank you enough for what you do. And I commend you uh, for everything that you're doing for women's health. Well, thank you guys. We're definitely better together. I know that. Absolutely. And I didn't want to forget, you have a ketogenic challenge that started today. And I was just wondering if you could let our listeners know a little bit about that. Yeah, today is October 14th, and I am leading the Redmond Real Salt 30-Day Keto Challenge. It's over on their Real Salt Keto Facebook group. You just have to ask to join and answer a couple questions. It's going to be an amazing community. I'm doing weekly lives on Monday nights at 7 p.m. Central, so people can ask questions. I'll be discussing different topics. So, um, And then they also are going to have um, food cooking demos with Chef Sean and a couple other celebrities um, sharing recipe ideas. It's going to be really good, even if you're a keto, you know, um, you've been doing this a long time, or if you're a total beginner and just curious, this is like the safe space to come learn and do it for 30 days. We're heading into the holidays. This is the hardest time of year for people to fight all those, um, you know, <laughs> treats that are sitting everywhere. So this is a perfect time to, to commit to yourself and, um, they can find me over there for the next 30 days. And then, um, we also have a low carb conference here in Omaha that's happening keto summit Omaha in January. And I'm leading a 90 day nutrition and fitness challenge um, here in Omaha for that. And we have a, an amazing group that just started a couple weeks ago for that. So you can come work out. You can come work out at 5 a.m. with me. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's super exciting. And uh, we will keep everyone uh, apprised of what's going on and, and any way we can ever help. Just let us know. Appreciate it. Prove It makes exogenous ketone products 
a perfect accompaniment to your ketogenic lifestyle to help you to optimize energy levels, sports performance, cognitive function, and more. See the show notes to try some today. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, Mind Body Breakthrough. Chris and I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend and to join us in our free Mind Body Breakthrough Facebook community where you can start peeling away the layers of everything that's not you so you can be you.